a memorable fancy. Once I saw a devil in a flame of fire who arose before an angel that sat on a cloud, and the devil uttered these words, the worship of God is, honoring his gifts in other men, each according to his genius, and loving the greatest men best. Those who envy or calumniate great men hate God, for there is no other God. The angel hearing this became almost blue, the mastering self, he grew yellow, and at last white, pink, and smiling. So the... In general, with the brilliant, what I've been doing is I've been trying to uh, use the conceptual spaces that people already sort of uh, use and exist within. So, for instance, this interview is going to come after a series of discussions about uh, egoism and sort of this the the people who, of course, I'm talking to either self-describe as as an egoist or somehow are so closely related to it that they can't evade the 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 name. But that's actually not my preference, right? I, I'm a recovering ismist, and and you know, so for many years I would, I, I've sort of played around with different isms, but but mostly what that's looked like is is maintaining the idea that I'm an, I'm an anarchist, and I'm not exactly an anarchist without adjectives because that has certain historicism to it, but I'm definitely not an, a hyphenated anarchist, and. So, talking to you, um, and I, I assume we're going to use your name, Lou. Sure. Um, uh, talking to you, Lou, is, is I think, going to be really useful for me and, and for the podcast because you define, yeah, sorry, you defy all labels that one would use to, to describe you. Um, I mean, our personal history has, has more or less been constrained to the uh, to the anarchist study group, we've both been participants for over 15 years, probably closer to 20. And this, you know, for people who who haven't heard this before, this is a weekly anarchist study group that happens in Berkeley, California. And even though I was a pretty established anarchist by the time I walked in the door, what I've become since then is absolutely trackable to the study group and to how the study group has helped me frame, understand my ideas, frame them, and articulate them on a weekly basis. Um, so, I mean, I guess the thing that's great about you is that you are probably the best read person in the study group. Could be. And, um, and you, you, you know, you obviously have your standbys, which I'm sure we'll hear all of them since <laughs> we've already, since we started out with Blake. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, your interest seems to be a politics that's beyond anarchism but that it is inclusive of it so i mean i would go for a big tent anarchism Mm -hmm. blake says the sky is an immortal tent um i also am comfortable calling myself a freak anarchist Mm -hmm. and i definitely don't consider myself a representative anarchist Mm -hmm. but the reason why it's important to sort of um to frame things out a little bit is because you are also equally participating in this Marxist-Leninist, um, not exactly a study group, but like there's a place called the Nebel Proctor Library that's just a couple blocks from the long haul. But if, if the long haul represents something nearly anarchist, Nebel Proctor represents something nearly Stalinist. And in other words, while there are some people who are more like anti-state commie types, they're very much quiet and have been suppressed and um, and so you do feel somewhat at home in that space too. So I mean, it there's it's a church thing. Sunday mornings at the Marxist library, mm-hmm. but um, it's a it's open to multiple tendencies, and they do argue amongst themselves. Mm-hmm. So in a certain way, it's a kind of anthropology. Sure. But um, I mean, I have a some people think of me as a Satanist. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Right. But if I could, I would prefer to know the Bible better than all Christians, because the devil can quote scripture. Sure. And so, I'm trying to learn Marx to out, so I can mm-hmm. fuck sure. with the Marxists. What would be your equivalent of doing that in the context of anarchism? I mean, obviously, other than participating in the anarchist study group for nearly 20 years. Uh, you, you mean, how does, how does the... How do you do the same thing you're doing with the Bible, or with Marx, Marxology, 
with anarchism? In other words, how can you sort of like... I, I mean, with the, with the anarchists, I'm not necessarily doing quite the same tricksterism <laughs> as I would be with religion and with Marx. But I mean... But there, I'm, there's I'm plenty of religion. myself too. Because, yeah, there's plenty of religion in, in anarchism. Yeah, and then you can't. I, I have now. I have more Christian. I used to be Christian sort of lines strictly, mm -hmm. but because I, now if I'm engaging with it, I have certain Christian sim sympathies. So I still, if I'm around Christians, I, I mess with them. But if I'm around anarchists who are kind of dogmatic, straight anti-religion, then I find myself. Uh, Actually, let me pause a second. Sorry about that. We changed locations because the sun is, in fact, blazing here in Berkeley. So, you know, my study of Marxism is not, in a way, it's not going very well. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, economics is called the dismal science, mm -hmm. the critique of political economy. I mean, it puts me to sleep. Well, I, I, I think it's important to differentiate those two terms, though. Economics, i.e. the dismal science... That's turgid, horrible stuff, especially in the Marxist lens. But the critique of political economy is something a little different, and, and I think it's more interesting. Yeah, uh, I mean, once I get to reading Marx, he has kind of a droll sense of humor, and it can be fun, but I'm always reluctant to crack the book, and there's always mm -hmm. something else. For instance, Nietzsche, anytime. Blake, anytime. Marx, eh. Not a lot of poetry to Marx. So I'm, you know, I'm hanging out with a lot of Marxists, and so I'm picking up a lot of their catchphrases. And um, Marx has a book called "The Eighteenth Brumaire of mm -hmm. Louis Bonaparte, and I realized, wow, Marx's greatest hits are in here. Uh, history repeats itself. First is tragedy, then is farce. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of great stuff. Um, I consider, to me, Marx belongs to anarchism. I mean, he, Marx really? invited Proudhon to join the League of the Just or something. He, he was writing Capital, and he was referring to Bakunin's copy of Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. Mm -hmm. Bakunin translated Marx into Russian. So they were friends, frenemies, enemies. But the, Leninism is a different thing. So, of course, you don't want to trust authoritarians because they'll kill you. But... And, and both well, Proudhon would, and Bakunin thought Marx had an authoritarian streak, uh -huh. and I agree with that. But but still, I love Marx. Marxism is another thing. Although there's a lot of interesting varieties. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, I, I mean, I guess the the concept here, though, is that is that you're you're eking out a way to be uh, like heretical while while honoring certain traditions. And that's that's sort of what it is that you're doing that I absolutely like respect and think is the same thing I'm trying to do with different tendencies. Um, uh, you say that, but you said that you're not doing well or like perhaps not succeeding in the context of Marxism. Why do you think that's the case? Uh, it's, it's just because some of it I just find boring. Sure. So. At the Marxist Library, we're reading uh, chapter one of Capital uh, about the commodity form. Mm -hmm. So, to understand the situationist, you really need to understand that. And I've also been through all of volume one of Capital with this sort of interesting uh, geographer. Uh, what's his name? I can't think of his name. Yeah, but, uh, this person's, uh, if, if they're who I think they are, they're doing this interesting geography pro project ab about geographies of material transportation and infrastructure and sort of how capital is composed in the era of just-in-time uh, production. I mean, so, so this guy's name is Dick. Uh, he, he wrote a book, I think he wrote a book called The Conquest of Bread, which he takes from a title by Kropotkin, <laughs> and it's about <laughs> agriculture in uh, California. It's, but, it's worth mentioning, by the way, that right now the internet has a variety of memes and one one of the memes is read the bread book, <laughs> and another one of the mean, memes is uh, uh, read the sand book. The sand book. Desert. Okay. And they're sort of rival yeah, memes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I get it. Mm -hmm. um, 
So there's people who think, think I'm a Marxist because, oh, you're doing something in the Marxist library, you sure. must be a Marxist. And I have a Nebel Proctor Marxist library t-shirt, which I've never worn in public. Oh, that's funny. And a ball cap, which I've never worn. Yeah, I would wear both of those just for the balls. If I'm ever put on trial as you are an anarchist and I want to be found innocent. Right. And yet, <laughs> so I was raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, if you're arguing with a pagan and they don't use all their best ammunition, you have to give it to them. So at my trial, I would wear the Neville Proctor sure. hat, and uh, but still try to defend myself and hope to be found innocent. Yeah. But I could get some Marxists to testify and say, hell no, he's not a Marxist. Although some of them might claim me. Mm-hmm. I mean, on some level, I guess the, the interesting part of the project that you seem to be invested in, like um, anarchism and Marxism on some level are make-work projects. In other words, they require the participation of the people who are involved in them to have them reach the, the, the heights that they could reach. And, you know, anarchism for many years, of course, had that going on, and right now more or less feels like it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so and so, the thing about spirituality, for, for better or for worse, it is more of a ritualistic activity. It's something that you can do every week. Yes, I do ritual every week. Um, we have something going. It's a, We put on the Aleister Crowley's Gnostic Mass on a weekly basis. Uh-huh. And in fact, I often attend a Mass twice a week because there's another group that I'm slightly estranged from, and many of my friends are, but not completely, trying and, to keep a foot in that world. And is it more explicitly Satanist, or is it also Crowley-esque? So Crowley called himself the Beast number 666, but whenever Satanists come around, they're always disappointed because it's, what's all this ancient Egypt shit? Yeah. I mean, Crowley, I don't identify necessarily with Satanism because we live in the Bay Area, where the Church of Satan was actually a big deal here for yeah. for several decades, yeah. and Anton LaVey lived here, yeah. and his daughter is still active. Isn't that true? Yeah, she does something every uh, has an anti Christmas every December. 25th. Oh, so it's just once a year that she does. It's, that, that's the only thing public open <clears throat> that I'm aware of, and I haven't actually been to it. We oh, haven't. No. So is this other group? The, so the mass, they do an Apollonian version of the Mass, where the priestess is kind of a celestial object, and we do the Dionysian version of the Mass, and everyone's hugging the priestess. And wow. Yeah. That is hysterical. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, obviously when we talk about our, the political splits within anarchist circles, which, you know, I do have a comprehensive knowledge of, uh, they're not that fun. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, there's hard feelings and uh, people not speaking to each other and that kind of thing sure (laughs) (laughs) but it's every week i mean magic the circles used to be ridiculous with back in the 80s people casting spells on each other and what you're still alive oh you know i was when i was thinking about how to how to do this conversation with you you know obviously i wanted to flesh out the i guess the three deep interests you have that you and and on some level like you're describing yourself as perhaps someone who's abandoned catholicism but is a true catholic small c sure no of course of course so the what's what's interesting about that in this context is is to sort of say like i was going to say to start this conversation now that you are one of the happiest people i know (laughs) because you made a a choice at some point to say I want to live a life of of the idea I I basically and, and not to tell too much of your biography because I don't actually know that much of it but but I'm not going to be a family man I'm not going to be chained to habit instead right. I'm going to be chained to ritual and you know to the extent to which you come to the study group every week I don't believe it's because you find anarchism to be the one true faith but it's but it's because you find anarchism to be among the one true faiths that you want to commit your weekly life to and so in that way you're you're an extremely unusual person you're not known for your projects instead you're known for being in the room okay I I mean I do have a number of projects Mm -hmm. Um, but I guess because they're week in week out they're not very mm-hmm. spectacular. Right. I mean, obviously, you know, 
I use the word project in the sense that Wolfie defined projectuality. Okay. And sort of, so so this idea that, um, you know, that the anarchist has an anarchist project and, and that frames a lot of the other things they do and you know, that's of course not to, to eschew another way to see that term but but there, there's a, a sort of Italian sensibility to, to how that's being used I, I liked it at the time I continue to like it I think it's a rich way to talk about like how I think about my own activity right so I've been involved with the long haul for a long time and I at a certain point, I realized, wow, my anarchism is really vague and sloppy and fuzzy. And I started to go into the study group, and Lawrence was the empresario at sure. that time. And he was, that's not anarchist. That's not anarchist. And it really challenged me to, like, yeah, let's let's be sharp here. Yeah, for And then, yeah. you know, some things are going to have fuzzy borders, and that's where I like to be, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walter Benjamin talked about being in no man's land. So he's studying Hebrew Kabbalah and he's a Marxist. So the Marxists think he's a mystic and the mystics think he's profane and he's there by himself. Mm -hmm. So it's a good place to try and get comfortable. And like if anybody does know you, it would be from the Bastard Conference presentations that you do. And your presentations have all had a sort of common theme in that you always try to include something that feels like a, a recitation, like a textual recitation. Right. You always have a performative element to your presentations. And to the extent to which you can, you seem to always want to do music. That's true. And so when you combine all those thematic elements into the Bastard Chronicles, which is the way in which we sort of do a report back from the Bastard Conference, it's always a weird fit. That's true. And um, uh, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are. What was the be- in your opinion, what was the best one? What was the best translation? Uh, well, I mean, the most popular one I did was on, it was called Dialectics of Magic. But it was, it was presenting, well, it had Zizek in it, it had Blake, it had Crowley. Um, it was trying to say on the one hand this, on the other hand that, and compare and contrast. And um, it could possibly be turned into something. Now, I mean, the thing I'm most happy about, I mean, even though the, in the latest uh, Bastard Chronicles, to me it's the... Which thematically was evil, unevil. So my thing was is called the Garden Party. So I'm interested in the concept of party. Blake has the devil's party, which I talk about that. And then the garden party is basically the, um, I love anarchists. I think everyone should do smashy smashy at least once. But I'm, I'm more interested in creative destruction where there's a vacant lot and now it's a garden. Mm-hmm. And so I see seed, uh, seed bombs. Yeah, that kind of thing. So, so I want, my anarchist utopia is when we tear up at least half of every street and we, we mess up the geometry so we have not just spirals. In fact, I, I like the grotesque. A grotesque, a grotesque city, or at least a grotesque anarchist ghetto. That's what, I, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to live to see it. But, I mean, not that it never happens. It's also worth noting that exarchia is nothing if not this. All right. So we need that in uh, the East Bay. Sure. That'd be great. We seem well, to it's have, becoming more and more yeah, unlikely we've as gone years in, go by. We've gone in the opposite <laughs> direction <laughs> over the past 25 years. Yeah. Um, uh, and so how, how do you feel like that was a success in terms of going to print? Because Perhaps it's a more discreet idea than some of yours are? So, in fact, so Blake and Walter Benjamin are my aesthetic models. So Blake has uh, pictures and poetry. Mm-hmm. Walter Benjamin's idea for yeah, the Arcade so Project yeah, <laughs> was he he would just take various pieces of writing by other people, Baudelaire, this, that, the other, mm-hmm. and just put them together with none of his own words at all. And yet it would be Walter Benjamin, and it would be, see how these fit together, or see how these compare and contrast. And so that's kind of what I did in this bastard piece. I mean, I had a Sufi story, and I had some stuff about Plato, and I... You know, I just put some stuff together, but and even though it's kind of like, uh, like when you make a mixtape and it's all boxcars, like one song's louder than the other, mm-hmm. and it's really clunky, and yet it it stands as a my manifesto for the garden party. 
Do you um, did you ever engage with the manual for revolutionary leaders? Oh, the first time I saw it, I was going, "This is fucked up. What is this?" Because I didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for the for the uh, biography of that, for people who don't know, the the manual was a joke um, put together by Freddie and Lorraine Perlman in the seventies, where they were sort of responding hysterically to the the Marxologists of the time who who weren't just obsessed with Marx, but were more obsessed with Lenin and and Che and with the idea of, you know, if we do this right, we could win. And um, and so the entire book basically intersperses direct quotations from Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, yeah. Che. And, and so the book reads as this... Um, uh, strange collection, and and of course, you know the the big success of the book was when it came out, which of course, you know the the clear intention was parody and to mock um, when it came out, but but they played the book straight, so there were uh, leftist groups that actually ordered copies because they felt like it was indeed a manual for revolutionary leaders, and um, uh, yeah. So, anyways, it's 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 definitely worth checking out, and uh, we at Little Black Cart put out an edition where we wrote a uh, we wrote a new introduction and yeah. and played around with it so it's funny that you you mentioned the the um, sort of seed bombs and, and and reclaiming in in that sort of traditional sense given that you occasionally participate with slingshot which if I were going to talk about what the slingshot political line is it is an aspiration in that direction oh um, definitely every cover has that. Yeah, um, it's tricky with slingshot because I'm, it's not that I'm not Puritan in any way, but I'm also interested in sort of transgressive. And slingshot will get mail about why did you have that person? He did this and that, and so it's really tricky to find where what. I mean, and on the other hand, this there'll be some explicit stuff in there that ten years ago, if I tried to put it in, everyone would say no, and then it's just there randomly. So I'm I'm kind of lost at sea in some ways about what can fly and what doesn't. There, well, isn't it a general or, or, or even a even question? in the milieu. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know I give a lot of talks and here I am talking on this and I give tons of lectures so I'm revealing myself and I I have blind spots too and um, I just sort of hope okay don't throw tomatoes at me sorry I mean I keep a lot of my opinions to myself <laughs> but you. When we're talking about the lectures that you give, I mean, just for people to to get some context, by and large, you give these, you spend a couple months researching a topic, and then at the end of that time period, you give a a sort of report back on what you've discovered over the the past few months to the Nebel Proctor Library, which, again, like... Like, it's hard for, to paint a picture of what the Nebel Proctor Library is because it's so unlike anything I've ever experienced before. It's not an alphabet bookstore. It's not um, Pathfinder. It's not RCP. But these people are Israel-obsessed Stalinists, by and large. So like, every time I've gone in there, yeah. Israel has come up. So these are people who have a very internationalist focus. Right. And they pro- some call themselves self Stalinists, but many of them are Trotskyists. That's true too. And and with it, and by that I mean having this internationalist focus. And you you hear people actually give um, you know sympathetic rants almost every almost every time I'm there about some current labor struggle, probably involving dock workers that just don't make sense outside of this room of fifteen twenty people. And also, it's worth mentioning that the Naval Proctor, these people are old. Like, yeah. there are people there who are 80-plus years oh, old. Yeah. Yeah. And <clears throat> so so that make, that already sets it outside of the imagination of most people. <laughs> you just gave a presentation to this room of people on Heraclitus. Yeah. Like, so <laughs> So on the one hand, you say, I don't know what fits in with, with <laughs> um, in the world. But you're also going up to a group of people who have a very clearly established ideology and basically yeah. like and acting like you're from the moon. It's true. I mean, you do this on purpose. Yeah, I do. <laughs> and, and there are times when I I'll give a talk and the anarchists will out, actually outnumber the Marxists. Uh-huh, right. Uh, and there are a know, lot more. That's of them. my goal. But it doesn't always happen. Yeah. Um, What's an example of a presentation you gave that that, that was true? Uh, 
Gosh. I mean, it's worth mentioning just to give a list of like, let's say the last two years. You've done E.E. E. Cummings. Is no. that true? No, you haven't. No. You've done. Or, idea, or, sorry, I'm thinking about um, uh, uh, not not E.E. E. Cummings. The the. Ah, shit. What have, what have you done the last two years? Uh, I mean, I've done Thomas Pynchon. I've done <laughs> Doris Lessing. Um, you know, I'm doing a thing that I'm calling the history of dialectics. And then sometimes with a friend of mine who turns it on, he's for the dialectic. Mm-hmm. And it's just Hegel and Marx, period. Whereas I'm trying to spell dialectics with a small d. Um, so, you know, about... There's a saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. So I think more anarchists should be getting involved with the local leftists and keep them close. Find out where their head's at. Find out where, who amongst them fight amongst each other and hear their debates. And uh, but, but by raising that, I mean, and I'm totally fine with the change of subject, that's a very... <clears throat> That's a very big, a, a really big statement that sort of escapes the motivation that a lot of people have to be involved in radical politics. To, to point, anarchists tend to be involved in radical politics because their friends are involved in radical politics. Right. And their arc of how long they're an anarchist or what their anarchism looks like has a lot more to do with who they consider their friends than with what they believe. Right. Because by and large, most anarchists, because they start so young, don't know what they believe. Right. And partially how they figure that out is the process of which they're involved in the anarchist space. And many of them, because America is an, is an incredibly anti-political or apolitical and anti-intellectual environment, most people come away with anarchism being like, that was a phase, I'm yeah. done, yeah. and everything in my life is encouraging me to be done with, with right. that part of my life. Yeah. When you're talking about <clears throat> leftists, Leftist is a very soft category. It's large, right? But it doesn't mean much out, out, outside of further explication. So when you're referring to leftists in the context of the Nebel Proctor Library, you're referring to hard left. Yeah. Again, these are Stalinists, people who seriously think that Stalin and and what mistakes he did, were made. Right. Mistakes <laughs> were fucking made. And and so what you're saying when you're saying keep your enemies closer is that you think that hard leftists are the actual rival of anarchists. And I'm not sure I agree with that. Well, I mean, it's also easy to meet in the Bay Area. You can meet venture capitalists and uh-huh. they're also They enemies. seem like the more clear yeah. rivals. They're, in- but they're on the ascendant. Yeah. So it's easy to keep in touch with their activities. From, um, from the, you mean from the news or from mainstream? Yeah, and, uh-huh. and you know, people who's, pe- black people being displaced from Oakland, who's moving in? You know, Uber executives, that or type of thing. So they're all yeah. around. I mean, they're, they're hard to get to know in some ways. You can't tell necessarily by the way they dress, but there's something about their body language. And, sure. Um, cool. I mean, they do uh, embody privilege. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, whereas these Nebel Proctor people do not. No. I mean, they are, on some level, like, they're the losers of, of the middle 20th century. There's one guy I've seen around the Marxist library who, uh, he lives in a VW bug, and his pants are taped together with duct tape, and apparently he's filthy rich. And he, they were having a crisis at the Marxist library, I don't remember if it was 2008 or what, but for some reason, all, all the rich people usually give to the Marxists were giving to the Democratic Party to help defeat... I don't know who. I forget what year this was. <laughs> but um, it's an eccentric crew over at the Marxist Library. So Blake has a, uh, he said, Blake says, the joys of eternity are the hunting of ideas and intellectual warfare. So Blake is against corporeal warfare. So, you know, I love debates and intellectual jousting. And as far as actual enemies, I mean, none of these people I know are right. going to seize state power no, and, and be the minister of its, the minister of repression. Right. Round them up. So some of them are my actual friends, you know. But who knows what we'll live to see? And there's finally there'll be anarchists who are splitting with each other. It happens all the time. And figure, I thought you were my friend. You were never my friend. And 
if, if push ever comes to shove, then it's a whole new ball game. So I think an intelligent left is emerging. Really? Um, I would Which say N, N plus one. I would say Jacobin Magazine. I would say the Platypus Society. Huh? Um, so, so it's it's interesting, and it, I think people should stay in touch with it and follow those trends. Sure. But I'm not sure those trends exist at Neville Proctor. No. Yeah. no. They're kind of youth yeah. trends, really. Yeah. And they're very yeah. New York City. Aren't all three published in New York? Maybe Platypus uh, is out of Chicago? Yeah. 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 So I, you know, I don't read every issue of Jacobin Magazine because sometimes it's just oh, the current issues on health care. It just made me fall asleep just looking at it. But yeah. sometimes there's really interesting stuff in there. So clearly, if one were going to try to expose you as a charlatan, uh, they would begin with the fact that pretty much everybody you cite comes out of the Western uh, Enlightenment, by and large, tradition. Right. Um, like, you don't quote any women, and you, uh, and you rarely quote a person of color. Okay, well, I did mention Doris Lessing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm a, an old white guy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's I true. Mean, like, the last decade especially, this kind of attack... I mean, obviously, there's a, a histrionics that you can choose or to engage with, and I, I think you immediately read me as, as attacking you from that direction. But <clears throat> there is a stronger argument than ever that, there's an, that there are, are vigorous intellectual traditions that are not being thought about or discussed by, whatever, old white men. Yeah. Um, to what extent has that critique touched you? And what have you done to respond to that? <laughs> uh, I've done very little to respond to it. <laughs> to it. I mean, I moved to at one point to Port Townsend for six months, and there were no Latinos. That's mm-hmm. odd to be in a place with no Latinos and no black people. And it's not that I was unhappy there, but I missed Oakland. And I basically, I Oakland's the only place I've ever lived that I've been happy. You officially live in... I live over by Highland Hospital. The neighborhood yeah, called Highland. Yeah. It's in Oakland. Is that called East Oakland? It's so. In when I drove cab, it would have been called Short East. Okay. As compared to Deep East. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. That's fine. I mean, what's funny is the actual geography of Oakland. What's called East Oakland is actually the south part of Oakland. Right. It's the craziest thing. Yeah. yeah. And all kinds of people live there, and it's. In a way, it's predominantly Asian. Like on Chinese yeah, New sure. Year, they're just firecrackers like crazy. Right. Yeah. Anyone who knows Oakland knows that Highland Hospital is like the general hospital of Oakland. So if you're if you're if you live anywhere near there, you really live in the shadow of it, including shootings, lots of ambulance sounds. Like it's where people go when they get shot. As a matter of fact, I believe that their surgeons are, are like nationally, if not internationally known, because their experience with gun gunshot wounds is so great. I mean, in the West Coast, it's like one of the, the two hospitals, basically, on the West Coast for that. So I passed out at work two weeks ago. And then I decided, okay, I'll go to Highland. And they couldn't find out shit about it. But they kept me overnight. But there was a, a certain point, there was, oh, there's a shooting and... Then they realize he's okay. He's waiting in the waiting room with everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Craziness. You um, uh, you don't need to mention the name of the place, but uh, you went from being a sort of straight worker person, lifting, lifting and lugging and carrying things around, yeah, forklift, to to literally working at a retail magic shop. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's with a, with a K. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, tell, tell, tell me a little bit about that, because well, I, I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but it just seems like the craziest thing. Is it exactly what I'd expect it to be, or what's what would confound my expectations? Uh, well, I mean, I don't totally know your expectations, but sometimes you, if you have a project, sometimes you should come in and get a magic candle, and uh, it'll be a glass, so-called seven-day candle, uh-huh. actually burned for five days. So you could... Uh, put your initials and some dollar signs in the wax with a nail. And then I would put glitter and charms and uh, little dollar signs. And I put a sun in, the sun rules gold. And I put a little silver moon, the moon rules silver. 
So, uh, but mostly I'd use green for greenback dollars. But there's tons of love candles. And um, it's like being a bartender or it's like uh, practicing psychotherapy without a license because people have serious problems. I mean, I gave a tarot reading and then this woman was talking about committing suicide. And I said, oh, the cards say stick around and see what happens. So you, if you're so going to be you're going to be dead soon enough anyways. So and she can, liked that. So you read tarot. Yeah. And has that been something you've done for a long time? Uh, so I've been hanging out with tarot cards since the mid-70s, but I only started reading once I started working at the store. Okay. Because I was already trying to help people sometimes with really serious problems, and then I found that the cards helped me get the message across. Because it's not me saying it. Look, here, look at this card. That sure. says, right. like this woman says, well, my daughter's father has joint custody, but I think I'm going to kidnap her. Oh. And I'm saying, no, the cards say that's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean that's that's interesting, but it's but it ends up being a not particularly dialogic way. It's not like talking therapy. You're 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 conveying a message from the cards, from the cards. But I, I mean, I try and get the people to talk as much as uh, I can beforehand, just and during, uh-huh. just to find out, you know what. Because I'm not trying to predict the future. I mean, someone said, I want to know if my, my uh, daughter-in-law is having a boy or a girl. And I said, oh, the cards say you should have an ultrasound. <laughs> <laughs> what term the, cards are my, the cards are my friend. I can just, I didn't say it. The cards said <laughs> it. <laughs> but, but you're just making like a shitty income. Like it's not. Like oh, yeah. Why are you yeah. coming to me as some expert when I'm working a minimum wage job? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm the but person supposed to know. I'm the person behind the counter, and they need help. And um, and I assume the job is fun. It's, I mean, I look forward to going to work. Yeah. But by the after eight hours, I'm ready to go, too. I mean, and, so, and if I'm... Sometimes I'm covering for people on sick or on vacation. Something like, fuck, I don't feel like it today. But for the most part, I look forward to going to work. Is it mostly older people that work there? Uh, sort of, yeah. There's no really young people that work there. Mm-hmm. Most people are younger than me, although two people are, are older. Uh, the clientele is about half black and half white. And when I work on Sundays, all these black church ladies are coming in after church. Wow. And sometimes two of them will, oh, I didn't want her to know I came here. But she's here. <laughs> but that must really help you in terms of your heretical... Uh, interests because these people are demonstrating what that looks like yeah. in a more normal lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I you know, obviously we don't live in the South and there isn't like a, a rich Haitian or you know voodoo type culture. So, yeah. uh, what does that look like in the California sense? Does it look like it takes more from Mexican spiritual spiritual cultures? Uh, I mean. We have tons of Catholic saint candles. Yes, we also have. They're called the Orishas from the African tradition, mm-hmm. and all kinds of people are buying those. Um, you know, there's a shut-up candle that shows a woman with her bound and gagged <laughs> on the candle. But it's meant for stopping gossip. Mm-hmm, sure. And, um, and in a way, the business is recession-proof. Really? Because people are desperate. It's always so, desperate. Five people come in buying a job candle, and I'm just thinking, I hope you're not going for the same job because I'm trying to bless this candle for you so you'll get the job. <laughs> but people need hope. That's just the way it is, and it gives people hope. Like, at least I'm doing something. You know, but it's an individual solution to a collective problem. <laughs> yeah, so, for sure. But good luck. <laughs> I mean, what's fascinating to me about all this is, you know, like, ultimately, I'm a secular person even if if my inclinations are different than that but like like my my training is in science when i do jobs a lot of what i'm doing in my jobs are absolutely scientific method right you know like i'm not done with the job until the thing works right <laughs> and and um and it's also i mean it's worth reflecting on the fact that like i assume the owners of this place don't make gobs of money they probably i i mean Every couple of years, she'll show a profit. Right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas, of course, like, I get paid well to do this thing right. that is soulless. Right. Um, uh, and I can absolutely understand why my coworkers would come to the shop at, yeah, in yeah. the weekend. Yeah. 
Um, so when you think of future interests, do you just do more of the same? Like, like are you are you in your sweet spot, meaning that you've sort of figured out? That's definitely true. More of the same. I mean, I want to do more. If I drop dead tomorrow, I don't really care. I just slow death. I don't pain. I don't like. But I, I mean, I'd rather stick around. But I'm ready to go as well. Yeah. How old were you when you finally sort of came to that place? Because I think that part of like like you have like you have your week pretty much locked in every week. Yeah. Like Monday, yeah. you know, what you're doing Tuesday, yeah. like and separate from your job. That's true. Yeah. When did that? like come all click into place uh so i mean i have a daughter who's 21 and so there's stress about being a parent especially they just when had a you're, child no no she hasn't had a child. Okay, okay. so so when we, you were we were poor as right. well i mean i've been poor my entire adult life basically mm-hmm. uh only a high school education and uh no yeah doing uh unskilled labor cab driver right working at a warehouse, um, now working at the candle shop, (laughs) selling magic candles and books. But obviously Uh, money, I mean, money wasn't your motivation. So now I've come up with a cheap rent situation, and uh, I'm I'm happier than I've ever been. So, yeah, I don't know when. I mean... So when when you got pushed out of the warehouse because of health issues, did that... Do you think that was the sort of like closing the door on any questions you had about your life once you settled into the answers that came? Well, so when I was about 29 or 30, I was going through my Saturn return and I realized, oh, I'm already doing it. I'm not going to set the world on fire. I'm, this is it. Uh, it was kind of a letdown. <laughs> But then I realized, well, if this is it, then I'll just try and get good at it. Right. So it's been a long time since I just said, okay, I, I'm just going to pursue my enthusiasms, and that's going to be it. I mean, I, I guess I'm, that story is interesting to me because so many people never find that. Right. Uh, you know, obviously I've chosen a little bit of a different path, but I'm working an awful lot harder than you are. Right. <laughs> and... Um, uh, how have you felt like the reading group has changed over the years? You were, um, like, we, we mentioned Lawrence, uh, for people who don't know, Lawrence Chirac was an author in Anarchy Magazine, and about 10 years ago, maybe a little more than that, he he was very clearly, like, when the study group started, it started as a class, he was the teacher of the class, and when the, when when the class was over, he had a hard time adjusting to the, to it being a reading group that that was you know more or less like equal participation, but that was a good thing because in fact he provided an awful lot of structure to the reading group that, it, as it turns out, is surprisingly necessary. Um, uh, but then over the past decade, that's changed. So I'm my sense of Lawrence is quitting when we realized we were all sick of the Spanish Civil War. Sure. Um, He's a known obsessant on this topic. Uh, So, I mean, I just, there's so many different phases of the study group. And, you know, a new crew comes in and then some people, you oh, you're back after a few years. And some people you never see again. And some people never say a word, even though they keep coming and you don't really get to know them. Uh, Sometimes there's more philosophical phases. Sometimes there's more... uh, you know, we might do a kick where it's all insurrectionary anarchism. Although it's been a while since we've done that, and and I would prefer more philosophy. But um, and I used to bring in things more because it didn't used to be the readings were online. Right. It used to be right. I would make my photocopies and yep. pass them out. Yep. Uh, but that's a negative change for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but like you know, we actually have three or four computers in the room. God, that's weird. Yeah, yeah definitely different than it used to be so you know I'm, I'm glad to see what other people's interests are it doesn't have to be I, I have plenty of outlets for for my enthusiasms and, and once in a while I'll bring something in I can't remember the last thing I brought in but I mean I was interested in reading now yeah we which we spent a few sessions on yeah I, you know now is it's interesting to me because I mean we we probably spent 
months and months talking about the Tikkun reprints and then Invisible Committee, pretty much everything that those people have written, we have read. Whereas I absolutely wouldn't say the same is true of Crime Think. Right, Crime Think, we maybe read one out of every five, maybe yeah. even ten yeah. things that they publish. Um, and that's because Crime Think isn't open to interpretation in the right. same way that, that the French people are. Right. And that would be my bigger my biggest criticism about the last two things that the Invisible Committee has done is that they are closing off the capacity for interpretation because now they're trying to do a, a, a party, right. which, you know, on the one hand, I'm not totally opposed to that, but the way that the writing, like the writing just doesn't feel so much more constrained, so much more like X, Y, Z, not R, S, and T. Yeah, yeah. There's probably a backlog of stuff that hasn't even been translated. I don't know. So was, some of that might be good. They, they now, you know, because uh, we published The Theory of Bloom, Right. I'm pretty. I, I'm pretty knowledgeable about what's happening with those people. They work with a, their English translator while they're writing. Oh their, yeah. Huh. Their bits. It, wow. It's not a separate process. Okay. Huh. Yeah. They don't finish and then it gets passed right, off. It's right. very much. Um, Robert Hurley is yeah, very involved yeah. in in, yeah. in their 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 bit. I mean, I think he was getting revisions of to our friends as they were writing okay. them, like sort of things. So. Right. Well, there used to be dueling translations. That was kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what was interesting about that was that 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 was when there was space for DIY translators, right? And there's still a lot of space for DIY translation, but yeah. not not with them, not with the most popular shit. Yeah. Like yeah. the whole point is when Call came out or Appel, um, is that like the person who did their translation didn't know French that well, right? And so it begged. Right. Like yeah. you know, there were two more translations after that. Right. But but once their um, publications became sort of the property of MIT, right. Then all that really changed. So Society of the Spectacle. I think Freddie Perlman did the first one, and then there's Ken Nab, and then there's Richards and Clark or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's fun to have. Yeah, for sure. A study group and have three different translations yeah. in front of you. Yeah, I mean, we've probably done Society of the Spectacle three or four times. Yeah. And I've enjoyed it every time. Yeah. And the problem is, is that there's only one translation of Revolution of Everyday Life. Okay. Hmm. He's he's done like three major revisions. Right. Right. But it's the same guy. It's yeah. it's a Nicholson Smith who does. Yeah. Yeah. And and I prefer his translation of Society of the Spectacle, but in fact, his um, I wish that the, someone else would do a. Yeah. Yeah. We, I think there's some of their stuff that hasn't been translated. Oh, I know there is. So somebody should do that. I mean, Vanagam never stopped writing. Right. You know, he has a. Uh, I got this through the library, and it's a. It's a like the rights of man. Huh? I have that one. It's fantastic. At first, I just thought well, this is dumb. Yeah. But then I started realizing. I mean, I basically is. Man has the right to party. Yeah. I, it's a, it's a it's a yeah it's a it's playful yeah. it's playful yeah. I mean, even his diggers thing. Or free, the brethren of the free yeah, spirit, yeah. The free spirit thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like he was playful. I mean, yeah, he's, he's yeah. A, a solid thinker. I'm not yeah. sure I agree with him entirely, especially yeah. as he's gotten older. Yeah. But it's it's hard to get old and not become, you know, for lack of better better language, more liberal. Because as you get older, you don't want to chase everybody away, and you don't want to, you know, spit bullets and yeah. and yeah. and that is the natural order of things. As you yeah. get older, you pres- you you care about your life more and yeah. the life of the people around you. Yeah, it's true. It sucks. <laughs> it sucks to sound liberal, you know. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I'm curious as to as to what anarchist material you've read over the past few years that actually you you found inspiring or interesting. Uh that's hard to say. Um, I mean, I've read stuff that I would call anarchistic. Uh, like, I mean, I'm I'm ex- I'm excited by uh, a book called Chronic City by Jonathan Lethem, and uh, he novel a novel, yeah. Um, it's super wingnutty book. Um, it's set in uh, New York City. He's lived in Berkeley. He's a he's the he's a bigger Philip K. Dickhead than me. Oh, cool. Um, and, and written some really interesting science fiction. And in fact, this book possibly could be called science fiction. But there's Blakeian elements to it, and um, I would call it sort of anarchistic. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm, you know, I'm excited about Thomas Pynchon. Uh, there's a movie based on on his hippie detective story yeah, called yeah, Inherent yeah. Vice, which I've seen four times. Like First it. time I didn't like it, huh? but then I realized because there was stuff in the novel that I wanted to be in the movie that wasn't. But then it was, ah, I kept thinking about it, so I saw it again. And then, uh, what's your favorite Philip K. Dick movie? Ah. Uh, Probably uh, Scanner Darkly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was a t- very young kid when I saw that. Okay, so. yeah, yeah. I remember being fucked up, but that was yeah, that. Yeah, Did you see the, the new Blade Runner? I did. I kind of liked it. I thought it was I mean, I don't care about fight scenes, but okay, Harrison Ford, he's going to have a fist fight, another fist fight, fuck all that. But I love the music, the guy falling asleep on the keyboard, <laughs> all through the movie, and it fit. Whereas I saw Wonder Woman, which I like, but I hated the music in it. I know what to feel. You don't have to turn up the cheese core of music. Yeah. Um, Do you watch uh, much of the the new wave of documentaries? You know, because of Netflix. No, I. Uh, you don't really do streaming. I, I listen to a lot of radio, and I read a lot of books. And I said, I've never heard a podcast yet. Really? <laughs> I mean, it'd be my kind of thing. Yeah, it really uh, would. My friend Bill Weinberg, mm-hmm. you know, he did a podcast on uh, Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, which he's read like 30 times. Why? And he's an atheist. It's a great book. Uh, it's, Why is it a great book? Uh, it's mythological. It's, uh, was it, it deals, before he became a Christian? No. It was what? But after? it's the story of his retelling of the story of Cupid and Psyche from the point of view of the uh, wicked stepsister. Really? And it's a great book. What's it called? Till We Have Faces. I've never read it. Yeah. So I told him I was going to listen to his podcast, but I it's not a lie because I mean to. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I only work 20 hours a week, but somehow I'm super busy and I just don't. <laughs> Time. I think we've already explained why you're super busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for this conversation. All right, it's fun.